0: Good morning, morning. my name is Paul Ramsey, like Taylor said. I am a church planting resident here at Sojourn. It's an honor, a joy to be preaching God's word to you. One of the joys that I get in my job, uh, as it is right now, uh, is that I get to sit and study and spend time in God's word, prepare to preach and actually preach God's word to us so that we might together come before the living and active word of God and be changed by it. Um, It's a joy and a privilege to be with you preaching this morning. Today is Palm Sunday, uh, palm Sunday gets its name from the event that you heard Taylor read. Uh, we're in Luke this year. There's, this story is recorded in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, and Luke doesn't actually include palm leaves in his account, um, but that is where the name Palm Sunday comes from. They were waving palm leaves and crying Hosanna uh, in the highest about Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. Uh, and uh, Palm Sunday kicks off the week known as Holy Week. Uh, that Christians celebrate around the gro- across the globe, uh, remembering the last the final week of Jesus' life before his death, crucifixion, uh, crucifixion, death, and resurrection. Uh, to give a quick view of the whole week, if you're not familiar with Holy Week, Palm Sunday is today. Uh, we remember Jesus' final entrance into Jerusalem, knowing that he was going uh, to be delivered up to be crucified. Uh, Holy Monday through Holy Wednesday, some Christian uh, traditions actually gather to celebrate those days, uh, as, as, and they'll remember certain events that are described just after Jesus enters into Jerusalem, uh, like his anointing at Bethany by Mary, his cleansing of the temple, his predictions of his own death, or the betrayal of Jesus by Judas, one of his 12 disciples. On Thursday of Holy Week, uh, which is called Maundy Thursday, which gets its name from the Maundy, the event where Jesus washed his disciples' feet on the last evening that he spent with his disciples. Um, some churches gather to commemorate Maundy Thursday as that last evening that Jesus enjoyed. He washed their feet and he also served them communion, the meal that we celebrate uh, every, every Sunday uh, when we gather. And then Friday of Holy Week is called Good Friday. Um, we'll be gathering together here Uh, at Briar Grove Sojourn Gallery at 5 p.m. on Friday evening to remember Jesus' crucifixion, death, and burial. And then there's silence uh, on Saturday until the third day after Jesus' death where we celebrate his resurrection on Easter Sunday. And so that's a a brief overview of Holy Week. Um, And today upon Sunday, we have the privilege, the the opportunity to really zoom in as we do every year on the story of Jesus' final humble entrance into Jerusalem to this chorus of Hosanna in the highest. Each of the four gospels, like I said, records this event, and this year we're in Luke, uh, chapter 19, beginning in verse 28. And one of the neat things about a day like Palm Sunday uh, is that we get to look together at this story uh, every year. Uh, And whether this is a very familiar story to you or whether it's your first time, we get to see that God's word is living and active and that we can never truly exhaustively read or study any passage of scripture. And so on this event, and the events that follow all of human history hangs, brothers and sisters and friends. And so together, let's dig in, asking God to, to reveal to us, along with the psalmist prayer in Psalm 119, 18, open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your word. And so for our time this morning, here's where we're going. Uh, we're going to look right at Jesus in this passage. We're going to make a couple of observations about Jesus and how he uh, enters into Jerusalem. We're going to look at the kind of kingdom that that reveals for us, and then we're going to look briefly as we close about the kind of people he's inviting us in keeping with his entrance to be. So without further ado, let's jump in. We, we've been walking through the book of Genesis for the past couple of months, and so as we transition uh, to the end of Jesus's life, I want to catch us up a little bit about what has been going on in Jesus's life. At this moment. Uh, In the Gospel of Luke, we're in the final days of Jesus' three-year-long ministry. And throughout Jesus' ministry, his interest has been to identify himself very clearly as the Messiah of Israel. Uh, The one sent by God from heaven to be the Savior of God's people, to be the fulfillment of all of the promises that God had made to his people through the prophets. And the more time you spend in God's word in the Old Testament and in Jesus' words in the New, the more you begin to realize that in just about everything that Jesus says and does, he's fulfilling Scripture. He's quoting Scripture. He's living his life in line with Scripture. He is fulfilling Scripture. In the words of a biblical culture scholar I heard recently, in Jesus' teaching ministry, Jesus wasn't so much giving new information, but new interpretation. In his teaching, Jesus' primary concern is to show his listeners that all of these promises from the Scriptures, which for us is the, the, the Old Testament part of our Christian Bibles. Uh, all of the Jewish scriptures, all of these promises from those scriptures are coming to fruition today. Now, he's looking at his followers. He's looking at, his, at the religious leaders of the time. He's looking at us saying, this is now. All of these promises find their yes and their amen in me. I am the one who you have been waiting for. So over the course of Jesus' ministry, he's been healing the sick, the lame, and the blind. He's been, just before this story, which is uh, the gospel of John, John's account says this is why there's crowds surrounding him as he goes into Jerusalem. Just before this story, Jesus had raised a dead man from The dead, Lazarus. He's also performed miracles of provision. He's performed miracles of power over natural elements. He's showed he has miraculous power over spiritual forces of evil. He's walked on water. He's identified himself with terms like the Son of Man, heralding back to the book of Daniel. The Shepherd of God's Sheep, heralding back to the book of Ezekiel. The Healer of the Lame and the Blind, pointing back to Isaiah. And the Water of Life, which Taylor preached for us beautifully last week, uh, from Exodus, Ezekiel, elsewhere uh, in the scriptures. There's more, but I'll stop there. I say all of this to say this. By this point, Jesus's ministry has reached something of a crescendo. While even his closest disciples don't yet realize the full implications of what Jesus is saying and doing here, there's no secret at this point that Jesus has presented his followers with a powerful case, that he is indeed the Messiah of Israel. He is indeed the one sent from heaven as the Messiah that they've been waiting for. And as a result, crowds have been amassed in all cities throughout the land. Um, to hear him preach, to hear him teach, to follow him around, to seek after him, hanging on to his words, acknowledging we think this just might be the Messiah. But by this point, they were also looking around and thinking, okay, Jesus, you're the Messiah. So aren't you gonna usher in this glorious kingdom that we've been looking forward to since the days of the prophets? Since, since the fall of, uh, uh, of humanity, since the entrance of sin in the world in the Garden of Eden, which we looked at just a couple months ago, uh, uh, God's people had been looking forward ever since that moment to a promised deliverer, this promised Messiah who would come and right the wrongs in the world, right? Who would come usher in this glorious new age uh, who would restore perfectly the relationship between God and mankind, between humankind and one another. And by this time, the Jews had been under Roman rule for centuries by the time of Jesus's ministry. They'd been free to practice their religion, but in a secondary kind of subjected state Um, they looked nothing like the days of the old Israelite kingdoms with King David, King Solomon, King Josiah, for example. And so they were yearning for this Messiah to come and bring them out from under Roman rule to give them their land back to usher in this glorious messianic age. And with Jesus making it clear that he was self-identifying as the Messiah, uh, they were thinking, okay, when are you gonna do it, Jesus? We know that they were thinking this because Luke tells us they were in chapter 11 of verse 19. Luke says that Jesus was getting ready to tell a parable to them because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. And they weren't just thinking it, Jesus had been asked outright. Back in Luke chapter 17, the Pharisees uh, said, had asked him, being asked by the Pharisees, verse 20 in chapter 17, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus answered them saying, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is already in the midst of you. See, the kingdom of God had been central to Jesus' teaching, and by this point, even with all the parables and other teachings that Jesus had given about his kingdom, we know that his followers' understanding of the nature of the kingdom, not just the timing, but its very nature, was, we know that their knowledge was partial at best and certainly mistaken. And so as we come to this passage, then, Jesus is clearly doing something more than just showing up in Jerusalem. He's teaching us very deliberately through every one of his actions about the kind of kingdom that he's come to earth to usher in. So let's look at this passage. The first thing that I wanna do is look right at Jesus, like I said. I wanna make three somewhat simple observations for us. Um, and then from there, we'll look for a couple minutes at what this might mean for us in our lives. For the first thing, look with me, if you would, at verse 28, chapter 19. It says this, and when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And we'll stop there. This first verse gives us the first thing that I want to observe for us. Very simply, Jesus had a clear mission. Jesus had a very clear mission. This tells us, just this first verse tells us where he was going and what he was doing. It says, and when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. It's subtle here. But I wanna point this, I don't want us to blow past this. In the context of the book of Luke, this connects with a thread that has been carrying through this latter stage of Jesus's ministry that becomes more and more apparent as Luke tells the story. Jesus had been constantly on the move, if you recall this. The, every time you come across Jesus, he's going from one town to another, he's traveling, people are following him, he's, he's constantly on the move. And we see that he has a final destination in mind, Jerusalem. He, he stops only to take the opportunity to either demonstrate or teach or both about the kingdom of God, which we find out later. The kingdom is, he, is the, the kingdom itself is the reason he's going to Jerusalem in the first place. The first mention in the Book of Luke about Jerusalem as Jesus' final destination on Earth comes back in Luke chapter nine at the Transfiguration, which is a story you might be familiar with. Jesus miraculously appears on a mountaintop with Moses and Elijah. Three of his disciples, uh, Peter, John, and James, witness this scene. Where it says, Luke nine thirty one, 31, uh, Elijah and Moses appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So that's where Jerusalem is first mentioned back in chapter 9. And from that point on, Luke repeatedly references this journey to Jerusalem on the, and the clarity of purpose for which Jesus is heading there. Stick with me for a moment. A few verses after the transfiguration, in chapter 9, verses 51 through 53, we read this. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Fast forward to chapter 13, verse 22, we read, Jesus went on his way through towns and villages, doing what? Teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Later in chapter 13, he alludes to our passage for today. Jesus laments, "O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones, those who are sent to it. I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's in Luke chapter 13. Chapter 17 says, verse 11, on the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was passing along between Samaria and Galilee where he stops to cleanse lepers and teach about the kingdom of God. Chapter 18, we read that taking the 12, Jesus said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem so that everything that is written about the Son of Man may be fulfilled. Then finally, chapter 19, verse 11, which I mentioned just a moment ago, Jesus gets ready to tell this parable, it says, because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. In other words, Jesus stopped to tell a parable because he was close to Jerusalem in an attempt to correct their view of what was about to happen in Jerusalem. And while we're gonna get more into just what he was going to do in Jerusalem in a moment, I wanted to point this thing, this first thing, this first observation out for us so that we don't miss it. And when he said these things, verse 28, and when he said these things, speaking of the parable he had told to correct their view of the kingdom, the parable of the 10 minus, Jesus went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Jesus had a clear destination in mind that informed his actions along the journey. In other words, he had a clear mission. He was laser focused on the task that was set before him. His face was set towards Jerusalem. Furthermore, as we see, the clarity of Jesus's mission regularly calls him back from things that might have distracted him from what he was doing. To give just one example back, I read it just a moment ago, Luke chapter nine, verse 51. This time, uh, this time I'm gonna read through verse 56. Feel free to turn to chapter nine, but you don't have to, I'll read it right now. This is what it says. When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, He set his face to go to Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead of of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for his arrival. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And listen to this. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? (laughs) But he turned and rebuked them and they went on to another village. So, So briefly, do you see what happened there? Right? Jesus was planning to go visit a village in Samaria to preach about the kingdom, but they rejected him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. The Samaritans uh, were enemies of God's people. Jews and Samaritans, a lot of mutual hatred. They were not friendly towards one another. And Samaritans, one of the things that they didn't accept, that God was, was to be worshipped in Jerusalem. And so they reject Jesus. And when they refuse to welcome Jesus, James and John are furious, his disciples, like, how dare you? You know, <laughs> This is our Lord. And in a fit of passion, they invoke this crazy imagery from Sodom and Gomorrah. Lord, do you want us to rain down fire and sulfur from heaven on them? Jesus could very well have done this, right? Would it have brought him glory? Yeah. Would it have testified to his power as the Messiah sent from God? Yeah. But would it have been in line with his mission of seeking and saving the lost, which he gives us in chapter 19, verse 10? Apparently not. So what does Jesus do? He turns and rebukes James and John and then goes on his way. Continues along the path. His mission was clear and it didn't include judgment over Samaria at this present time. So he moved on. So Jesus had a clear mission. I've heard having a clear mission described this way. It's described as having a convictional yes that enables you to say, to give a convictional no to the things that make room for saying yes to what you've actually said yes to. The necessary nodes is required to allow you to actually do that thing that you've set out to do. And so, the question is: One question is, do you have this in your life? Do you know where you're going in your day-to-day work? That's that's one thing. Are are you crystal clear on what you're responsible for on a day-to-day basis in such a way that that informs how you spend your time and what you give your energy to? But zooming out a bit, what what about your life? Do you know where you're going personally? Parents, do you have a clear mission for your family that informs the things that you say yes and no to? Or are you just winging it? If you're single and pursuing marriage, if you're working your first career and looking for another, if you're retired and seeking to choose how to spend your time, do you have a clear mission, a clear destination in mind? Or are you just winging it? Kind of drawn by your desires or your wants wherever you might go. Imagine how different history would have been if Jesus had agreed to rain down fire on that Samaritan village. Imagine how that would have affected our understanding of the gospel, of the nature of the gospel itself, and of Jesus' love for the lost. I praise God that Jesus didn't rain down fire and sulfur from heaven, that he had a clear mission guiding him along that enabled him to say no to something that would have been cool. So that's the first observation. It's subtle here, I know, but to rightly understand what Jesus is doing here, we must understand that this is part of a very clear mission that Jesus had set before him that all of Luke has been building us towards. For the second observation, let's read. Look with me, beginning in verse 29. It says this, When Jesus drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, you shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away excuse me, those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, the owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. So let's pause there. The second thing that I wanna point out for us is this. If you noticed there, Jesus exercised great intentionality with respect to exactly how he was gonna achieve the mission that was set before him. This comes, this is a simple observation and it comes really straight out of the first observation, but I think it bears mentioning on its own so that we too don't blow past this. As Jesus approaches Jerusalem, he pauses at Mount Olivet, right? Sends out two of his disciples to make arrangements for his arrival. He sends them to obtain a colt, which the gospel of John tells us is the colt of a donkey, a young donkey, which had never been ridden. And what I wanna point out here is that Jesus is clearly giving thought to all of these details surrounding his entrance into Jerusalem. He is arranging things very purposefully. This harkens back to chapter nine, verse 52 from the story that we just looked at. Remember what was happening at that point, verse 52. Jesus sent messengers ahead of him to prepare the way in this village of the Samaritans. And then a few verses after that, chapter 10, verse one, you might recall Jesus sending out the 72 disciples. He sends them out two to two. Why does he do that? He sent them on a preparation-making journey, says, he sent them on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. Jesus was very intentional with exactly how he went about fulfilling this mission. There's some debate as to whether Jesus had prearranged for this donkey to be available when he needed it, or whether he was exercising his divine awareness and power in both knowing that it was where he said it would be and determining that the owner would be open to him commissioning it for his use. But regardless of which is true, in either case, we see that Jesus not only had a clear mission, but he exercised great intentionality in how he went about taking his steps along the journey. He needed to make the most of the time that he had and the opportunities that he had to communicate with his followers. And so he was intentional with respect to the details. I was reading a book recently uh, called Techwise Family by Andy Crouch. It was highly recommended to me and I highly recommend it to, to all of you. Um, It's about putting technology in its proper place as a family in today's um, digital age in which technological devices are kind of demanding more and more of our our, our time, energy, devotion. At the beginning of the book, uh, Tech Wise Family by Andy Crouch, at the beginning of the book, the point is made, uh, in line really with my first observation just a moment ago, that as a family, particularly with children, it's important to have a clear, explicit mission. Where are you going as a family? Where do you want your kids to be when they're headed off to college? For the rest of the book though, he moves on from the mission and shows us that unless you're intentional with the details of your life together, specifically with respect to technology, you'll find that you actually have little control over whether or not you actually attain that mission that you've been been setting out to do. In other words, a family without a mission is a family without a purpose, but a family with a mission yet without intentionality with the details is a family that'll look back in 10, 15, 20 years and wonder how he got here. Not only did Jesus have a clear mission with a clear destination in mind, a clear purpose and place for which he was headed, but he also demonstrated great intentionality with how he got there, arranging the details so as to make the most of every opportunity. He could have blown by this opportunity. He could have. Right? He could have just marched into Jerusalem just fine, died for the sins of the world, had the same kind of ministry, but because he was intentional with the details, he didn't miss the opportunity to give this beautiful demonstration of the kind of kingdom that he was ushering in. That brings me to the third observation in this passage. Why this clear mission? Why this great intentionality? So far, I've pointed out these two details about how Jesus did it. Now, let's look for just a moment at what Jesus was actually doing. The third observation is this. The way Jesus entered into Jerusalem gives us a picture of the kind of kingdom he came to bring. There's a few things here. First, Jesus' entrance on, uh, on a donkey was the fulfillment of prophecy. It was a fulfillment of a prophecy, you might be familiar with it, um, uh, from Zechariah, the prophet Je- Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah was one of the minor prophets of Israel, uh, and the major themes of the book of Zechariah are salvation from sin uh, and salvation of God's people. In chapter 9, uh, Zechariah is talking about bringing judgment over God's enemies, and right in the middle of this chapter about judgment, he says this, chapter 9, verse 9 of Zechariah, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. So he's talking about the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Jesus's arrangement to have the colt of a donkey brought to him for the sake of his entrance into Jerusalem was very deliberate. He knew what he was doing and he knew what he wanted to communicate. His followers, though, we know we're thinking something different. John tells us in his account of this event that his his disciples didn't connect the dots between Jesus riding on this donkey and the prophecy from Zechariah until much later. After quoting this Zechariah passage, John writes, chapter 12, verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So you see, Jesus' followers were looking forward to Jesus' arrival as the Messiah as one of being him riding in on a war horse to rally his people and conquer the Romans. That's what they were waiting for. They were looking for a warrior king. We see this in their actions. In verses 35 and 36 of our passage, they spread out their cloaks over the colt and over the road as a sign of their homage to Jesus and the submission to Jesus as king. Furthermore, while palm branches, like I said, aren't mentioned here in Luke, uh, Mark tells us that 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 the crowds laid leafy branches over the road. And John tells us that they were waving palm branches as, as they cried, Hosanna. Mm-hmm. And do you know what palm branches, especially together with the cry of Hosanna, signified? Hosanna uh, is a Hebrew and Aramaic word that remains untranslated. And it's essentially a plea to God for salvation. Hosanna is, says, is basically saying, Lord, save me. That's what the word means. Um, here it's used as an expression of praise and worship. And it has come, it's a liturgical term for the, for the Jews. It's also a, 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 a term of praise and worship. And palm branches give a very specific emphasis for their celebration of Jesus's arrival into Jerusalem. In the ancient Near East, here in Jesus's day, palm branches held real significance for the Jewish people, particularly with respect to celebrating the military victories of Jewish people. So there was a military victory, a conquest successful conquest connotation to the use of palm branches. So to wave palm branches and cry out Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, Jesus' followers were making a very clear statement. This was a battle cry. Mark's account records that one of the things that people said was blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. So they were picturing this conquering warrior king coming back into Jerusalem to take back over from the Romans. The crowds around Jesus were celebrating the arrival of their king, but, you know, who they were expecting to bring this military victory. And for this reason, this was actually a dangerous, kind of almost violent display, which helps explain why in verse 39, the Pharisees told Jesus to rebuke his disciples. The Pharisees were religious leaders of God's people at the time of Jesus. And they had begun to realize by, by this point that despite their best efforts to quash Jesus and his ministry, he was, uh, he was amassing people, amassing followers. People were acknowledging Jesus as Messiah. And the Pharisees knew that this was a dangerous thing. This scene was very dangerous to do in Rome. Arriving into this major city in the empire as a new king with crowds around them shouting this battle cry of victory. The Pharisees were concerned about the well-being of the Jews kind of as a whole under the, under the, uh, uh, the rule of the Roman authorities. So they told Jesus to call them off. They, rebu- they said, Jesus, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus doesn't do that. He replies in verse 40, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So again, Jesus' words are dripping with scripture here. He's, he's referring to the, to the stones crying out from Habakkuk chapter two. And Jesus' reply to the Pharisees is, this is only natural. While the crowds are mistaken about what Jesus was coming into Jerusalem to do, Jesus affirms the central thrust of their celebration. The king is coming into the royal city and there must be a welcome party heralding his arrival. If not the people, then the stones themselves, nature itself would cry out and receive its king. We get this picture of all of creation standing, poised, watching as Jesus enters into Jerusalem to fulfill the things written about him. Zechariah 9.9 had said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Rejoice, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. You might have thought that in a section where the prophet Zechariah was talking about judgment over God's enemies, that the rest of that verse would read. And so here he comes riding in on a war horse with sword in hand to lead his people to victory. But even in Zechariah, we see The prophet Zechariah shows us that God's plan all along was to procure salvation for his people in a very different kind of way. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Right at the heart of this event, friends, right at the heart of this event is this picture of a king. And not just any king, but the king of all creation but not riding in on this strong warrior horse, but the colt of a donkey. Sitting not on these beautifully embroidered uh, royal standards, but on the used, likely tattered cloaks of his disciples. John tells us that even Jesus' closest disciples missed it in this moment. They too were caught up in the spectacle, perhaps for a moment, even though he had told them explicitly time and again, I'm going to my death in Jerusalem. They're like, perhaps the crowds are right. Perhaps this is the day. But right at the middle of this picture, Jesus' face was set. He knew what he was doing. He knew what lay ahead. And here he was, sitting on the donkey, knowing that his disciples would miss it, even until the very end. But one day, they would look back and remember this moment with wonder at their glorious, humble Savior who came not to be served, but to serve. You see, the world has one way of seeing authority, really. In the eyes of the world, Physical strength, power, and might are the measure of a person and the measure of that person's authority. But in the eyes of heaven, in the eyes of God, it is what is within that ultimately matters. As it says in Jeremiah chapter nine, verses 23 and 24, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. In these things I delight, declares the Lord. Do you hear that? Wisdom, might, and riches aren't bad in themselves, but they are not meant to be an occasion for boasting. At the very heart of God is his love, his steadfast love, which he demonstrates through going to any and every length to pursue and ensure justice reigns on the earth and that, that, that his righteousness may cover the earth. And the ultimate display of this steadfast love, justice, and righteousness is Jesus coming to earth to show, in the words of Romans 5, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, that we might be justified, made righteous by his blood, and saved by him from the coming wrath of God, which is coming on account of the injustice practiced by us in the earth. Jesus uses this triumphal entry into Jerusalem as a demonstration of the kind of authority that characterizes his kingdom. Right? Not coming in simply to exert power over his subjects, but to lay his life down, going to the greatest lengths to save these subjects that he might work one day through these subjects. This is authority. Deep within us, we know that this is right. right? That exercising power as brute strength is not the way of true authority, but that there's real beauty in laying your life down for the people you're in authority over. We know this to be true. For decades, even among secular leaders, servant leadership has been a celebrated means of leading people in business and on teams. Romantically, we all dream of finding someone we can lay our lives down for and who will lay their lives down for us. But even though we know this is true, none of us does this. Even though we can be practiced at applying servant leadership in different spheres of our lives, we realize that we can't ultimately do this to the fullest because we are, as we find out, hardwired to preserve and protect our own kingdoms. But this is the gospel. Jesus came in knowing full well that his people would miss it, that even his closest disciples wouldn't understand what he was doing. In verses 41 through 44 of our passage, the last verses, it says that as all of this celebration was happening, Jesus emerges from the crowd and he draws near to Jerusalem. And as he lays his eyes on the city, he begins to weep. He says, would that you, even you had known on this day the things that made for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. The, the truth was hidden from Jesus's followers at this moment. Who, they still thought that a conquering warrior king was the way to have the peace, the shalom that they were looking for, but it would soon become clear. All, right, all of this, even their, and our misunderstanding of Jesus was part of his plan. You see, while we were far from him, even as Jesus was drawing near to us, he gave his life for us, dying at our own hands to fulfill the righteous requirement of God and atoning for our sins that we might not have to taste the death that we deserve, but have life instead. It is for this reason that Christ came into the world, that with his face set toward Jerusalem, he would be delivered up to death for our sake. But it was for the joy that was set before him Hebrews 12, 2, that he endured the cross, even despising the shame, that he might be seated at the right hand of the throne of God, ushering in not just just the era of salvation for sins, but the era of the kingdom of God, which looks nothing like the kingdoms of this world with our pompous kings, the, the pompous kings and queens who lead through their exercises of strength surrounding themselves with pomp and circumstance. But at the center of this kingdom is a humble servant king, one who appears as though he's a lamb who was once slain, rode into this royal city on a a donkey, sitting upon tattered cloaks in order to procure life for his people. The more we look, the more we see that everything in this passage is focused on one thing, the kingdom of God as God intended it. Jesus was clearly intentionally communicating with his followers and with the world that this is the ultimate purpose of God in Christ and in his kingdom. Humble, loving submission to the will of God for the sake of of the whole world. And so my question for us this morning is this. Do you hear him? Do you hear what Jesus is saying to us through this passage? He's calling to us. He's calling to you. He's calling to me saying, will you follow me? Will you come and live as I lived? John records in chapter 12, right after this event, that there were some who were seeking after Jesus and his disciples told him about it. Listen to how Jesus responds uh, to these questions. This is after the triumphal entry, right as he gets into Jerusalem. People are looking for him because they hear about this new king. Listen to how Jesus responds about the one seeking him. It says this, John 12, verse 23. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. There's a ton in that passage. But here's the point. A pastor friend of mine said recently, Jesus didn't come for fans, he came for followers. Jesus' intention in his life and ministry wasn't to blow people's minds. It wasn't to feel their ears and their heads with this new teaching so that they might be impressed and be more knowledgeable about the way of salvation. It wasn't even simply to die to take away their sins from them. Jesus didn't just come for listeners or for fans. He came for followers. His intention was to die for their sins so that they might be freed and empowered to live their lives in pursuit of him, following in his footsteps and building his kingdom as we await his return. And as we follow in his footsteps, I think in these three observations that we made of Jesus in this passage, we see something about the kind of people that he's inviting us to be. He's given us a mission. He's given us a very clear mission, that of building his kingdom in his stead, exercising his love, justice, and righteousness in the earth so that through our fruitful multiplication, which we saw a few weeks ago, we might see nothing, uh, we, we saw a few, ago that f- a few weeks ago that our fruitful multiplication is nothing less than the original purpose for which God created humanity in the first place. And through this fruitful multiplication, God's desire is that the entire earth might be covered with his glory and his glorious kingdom. For you and for me, the invitation from Jesus is this, come and follow me and be fishers of men. God has ordained the times and the places in which we might live, that we might live on the mission for which he's called us. He's called us, he's given us this mission, this great commission, and he's empowered us as the church to fulfill this mission as his very body in the world. For the land that God, God's people were looking for, God has given us our relationships that we might cultivate them wherever we are for his glory. You see, God started with a garden in order to make the whole earth a promised land. And now he's back in our passage, entering into Jerusalem to start with a small group of people, a garden, if you will, so that he might send them from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of earth, as it says in Acts chapter one, that God's glory would reach even the ends of the earth. We, you and I, who are beneficiaries of this mission must, almost, must also, excuse me, keep this mission front and center. This is what Christ has given us to do. We must give great thought to even the smallest details of our lives that we might make the most of every moment, every opportunity to herald and expand God's kingdom in the world. And we must follow in the footsteps of our humble king, laying our lives down for his sake and for the sake of others, even our enemies, especially our enemies, so that in laying down our lives, we might actually find them. And in that, the purpose for which we were created. This is what God has given us to do. And this is what we will give ourselves to. We are not here to play church. We are here to build God's kingdom. Our neighborhood parishes aren't just inward focused, small groups with a, new, with a weird name. They're missional communities, always purposed and repurposing themselves to point one another towards the mission God has called us to because we get distracted. But when we are distracted, when we neglect our call and give ourselves to other pursuits, the invitation is not come and be judged. The invitation is come and repent, turn to Jesus and follow him. Get back to work, the work that he made you to do that you might find fulfillment and joy. In our neighborhood and in our city sojourn, our mission is to see the gospel made non-ignorable in our city, to make sure every man, woman, and child in our neighborhood, in our city has repeated opportunities to hear and respond to this glorious, beautiful gospel of Jesus Christ. That's our mission. That's what we're doing. Let me close with this quote. This is a pastor named Ray Ortland who is writing about Nashville, so I adapted it for Houston but at so, uh, Sojourn Heights years ago is when, it, when I heard this the first time, commenting on Acts 17, verse six, which says, these men have turned the world upside down. Ray Orland says this. In the days of the apostles, outsiders disparaged the church, but they couldn't ignore the church. Today, here in Houston, our task is to recreate those conditions. We wanna be a force for wonderful gospel upheaval. How? by planting so many gospel-centered churches that the presence of the living Christ cannot be ignored. Being spoken against as ones who turn the world upside down is not a problem. Being ignored is, because this isn't about us, it's about Jesus. In the corporate psychology of every city, there's a threshold of non-ignorability. Here in Houston, many things can be ignored, but the Texans cannot be ignored. The heat and humidity cannot be ignored. The economy rising and falling on the price of oil cannot be ignored, but the gospel remains ignorable. An organic, from below, non-big event strategy of church planting. Some churches small, some medium, some large, but churches with a clear message of grace and a beautiful culture of grace. Churches of gospel plus safety plus time where sinners can rethink their lives without pressure. Churches where sinners can admit their needs without being humiliated. Churches where there are more and more stories of divine renewal. And Houston will wake up one morning and sense that something has changed. It cannot be ignored, it cannot be dismissed, it cannot be written off because it's not just another big event down at Energy Stadium that comes and goes, but is embodied in a growing network of radiant churches that just keep coming. May the lamb receive the reward of his suffering in Houston. I wish those were my words. Beautiful. Brothers, sisters, friends, let us be captivated with Jesus. Be captivated by him today and every day so that you might be drawn out of yourself, that his sacrifice might put the sacrifices that you go through in your lives into right perspective. His demands on our lives are greater than we could possibly imagine. But the reward that he offers at the end of our journey is far greater than we could possibly imagine as well. Some of us need to reckon with King Jesus, but ultimately our lives, brothers, sisters, friends, is about beholding and embodying Jesus so that as we behold him, we are more informed about how we should live. And then as we seek to live like this, we realize, hang on, we can't do this. And that forces us to look back at him and just be awestruck at the glorious love, never ending grace of Lord Jesus, as he invites us back, not unto judgment, but unto constant renewal, constant growth, as we seek to pursue him our whole life long. So may the lamb receive the reward of his suffering here at Sojourn this morning, and evermore as we seek to live in light of the example that he's given us for his glory. In Christ's name, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning humbled by your presence among us. We're so thankful, Lord, for the grace of the gospel, for the ministry of your Holy Spirit, which weaves the truth of the gospel into our hearts. This is not a teaching that we have heard and received by sheer force of will, This is a loving relationship that you have welcomed us into with arms open wide, drawn us into by the ministry of the gospel. And so we're thankful for that. Lord, I pray that you would help us above everything to behold you, to see you, to see your face, to see your nail pierced hands, to see the life that you lived with reckless abandon, apparently, for our sake, so that we might have life. Lord, I pray that this Holy Week would be a turning point in each of our lives, whether this is our first Holy Week or our 60th. I pray that you would meet us in our remembrance of the end of your life on earth and change us, that our lives might look more and more like yours. Free us from pasts that we cannot change, Lord. Empower us to walk in the only way that can lead to life and life abundantly. Help us to bear with one another and to be the kind of community within which grace is extended, love is shared, and you are worshiped above everything else. We love you and we praise you in Christ's name, amen.